In this episode, I am once again joined by Dr. Julian Schott, Indologist and Tibetologist, trained at institutions such as the renowned Center for the Study of Manuscript Culture at the University of Hamburg. In the first section of this episode, Dr. Schott discusses the idea that Buddhist studies as an academic discipline is in decline, with meager enrollment, falling standards, and the de-emphasis on philology and mastery of the tradition's scriptural languages. Dr. Schott also reflects on the skills and attitudes that make a good scholar. For the rest of this episode, Dr. Schott pulls back the curtain of the life of a philologist and discusses his re-edition of Indrabhuti's Siddhi, an in-depth study of its Indian origins and early tradition within the Indo-Tibetan Mahamudra teachings details the philological process of reconstructing this important text and explains the pathway from the inception of the idea to obtaining funding to eventual publication. Dr. Schott also remarks on the early tantric tradition in India, compares its characteristics to later tantric forms such as the Yogini Tantras of India and Tibet, and shares some surprising insights from Indrabhuti's texts on attaining Siddhi and enlightenment. So without further ado, Dr. Julian Schott. Dr. Julian Schott, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And perhaps I ought to begin by congratulating you on your recent appointment at the University of Vienna. Thanks. That's very kind. The University of Vienna is extremely prestigious and wonderful a wonderful appointment this is for you. So could you say a little bit about what it is that uh, has happened? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there was uh, a, a change uh, for the holder of the chair in Tibetology, and they needed a new assistant uh, to, the, uh, to the professor. And I applied and uh, I was accepted, which is very nice because I think that Vienna, uh, together with two or three other places, perhaps remains one of these, let's say, stronghold of um, classical European education in terms of classical philology and um, the subjects I have been taught and trying to uh, maintain. So I am very happy that I'm given the chance to do this while at the same time trying to help fostering um, the wealth of the department and Buddhist studies as such, uh, which is a, a great contemporary challenge, I suppose. I mean, in other words, or in simple words, that uh, philology can be helpful, even for people who might not think that it could be so. I'm very curious, and I don't expect this to be an exhaustive list, but I'm very curious, what are the other two or three places that you had in mind when you mentioned University of Vienna is up there. What are, what are, what are the truth here, the other places that, that in your mind still have that, that kind of standard? I think um, there is probably Hamburg, uh, the Paris, uh, maybe not in terms of Sanskrit, but certainly in sense of Tibetology. Uh, there is Budapest, um, highly, highly underrated, uh, but absolutely excellent uh, place to, to study. Um, then there is uh, Munich. Maybe I suppose Munich is also belonging there, and uh, and uh, one or two colleges in Oxford probably. 
where there is some excellent scholars, but I probably that's that's more or less it. Yeah. And of course, you have like the one or the other expert here or there yeah, scattered around the world and, and, and places, but not in the sense that there is a strong old uh, tradition. Very interesting indeed. And what do you foresee your duties and roles to be as the assistant professor there? And what would you like to bring? What sort of vision do you have for the department? What would you like to contribute? So you see, while while I thought um, how to continue and what to do and how to deal with academia as such, um, it turned out that a, a good colleague and, and friend of mine who is going to be the professor there also has the vision of trying to combine, let's say, the the strengths of our um, of our historic theological education and bring it into a contemporary perspective. Um, for instance, trying to work together with other disciplines for whom Buddhism or aspects of Buddhism are relevant in their studies. I mean, of course, things come to mind such as the uh, mindfulness, meditation research, and, uh, and things like this, you see. And I think there is a lot of um, a lot of perspective that you can bring in if you know what your colleagues are looking for and if you're willing to work together with them in a, um, in a spirit of, let's say, of the mutual interest to explore something that you find of worth, um, not only for yourself and your small department, but let's say a contribution to not only science, but also the social life in in general. And uh, this is how I see my role, or this is what I aspire to be part of if I'm getting the chance. Of course, I do not know what's going to happen, um, but I will do my best to try be part of something that I think has the potential to uh, provide some, some valuable stuff. Yes, well, I'll repeat my congratulations. It's wonderful appointment for you. And I think also a great choice by University of Vienna. I think they'll be very enriched by your being there. Fantastic. Now, there are many things that I wish to discuss with you today. We were talking a bit before about what some of them might be. And um, I'd like to ask you about the life of uh, a scholar in your field. But first of all, there are just a couple of things that you've brought up there that perhaps we could pick up on. You're, you're pointing to a few institutions there, which you consider to be of a certain standard, and you mentioned the word old, the kind of old style that you're associating here with some, some sort of mm -hmm. high standard or a way of working. And one of the things that we had discussed talking about today was Buddhist studies in general, or Indology in general, perhaps, in universities in Europe and America and places like that, the state, if you like, of a discipline. And you've, I think, hinted there at a sort of bifurcation between different the two different general approaches, the sort of approach that you're following at University of Vienna and other places you listed some, and another kind of approach, it seems, presumably that's going on in most other places. What would you what would you if you if I was to ask you to reflect on the state of Buddhist studies as a field or a discipline or whatever the word might be, or Indology in general or however we ought to think of it, how would you reflect on that? Do you see as as some do as many do, a decline? Yes. Um, short answer is yes. And I think, how can we see this? Um, 
you see the number of students everywhere is getting less and less. Departments have the tendency to be closed uh, rather than to be opened. And publications seem to be of a generally lower standard than they used to be simply given the pressure of time and lack of education in primary language studies, which in my view still remains of a paramount importance. This does not mean, not to get me wrong, that other things um, are not also important and that it's not good to have them. But for instance, if you want to do, let's say, meditation research or mindfulness, and you do not even know um, how the states that you're supposed to be experiencing in one or the other practice are to describe how the how are these to be defined, et cetera, et cetera, simply because you're not able to read any primary text. And I wonder sometimes, you know, how are people to know what they're looking for? Just, just to give a random example. So I think there you can really see, uh, see a decline. And also there generally seem to be less willingness to do, um, let's say, hard work in the sense that you're really devote, you're trying to devote yourself to something and are not uh, satisfied um, with, let's say, um, getting a good grade in a course, you know, uh, in a BA or MA or, or whatever it be, because you see that the thing itself simply requires more of you than uh, to follow a BA curricula and then to expect that you really can do anything. Hmm? Not to say that I can do everything, not, not, not at all, but at least I, um, I'm, uh, I know my place, let's say it like this. Yeah, you've cited several things there: falling, fall off of attendance, a decline in primary language competency, or at least a de-emphasizing of that. What do you think is behind, or what are the mm. causes? I suppose is the causes and conditions. If we were to <laughs> say it like that, what do you think the causes and conditions are of mm -hmm. this? Um, and from where have we fallen? I think the primary cause for this being. Uh, the idea that a certain productivity or results can be measured in uh, things or numbers or money. Um, meaning that there does not seem to be much appreciation for someone who, for the sake of exploring something, gets the chance to explore it, knowing that. Um, not not actually not actually knowing if it will be of uh, benefit or not. Yeah? So so to say, the scientific curiosity to do something for the sake of doing it and giving somebody who has proven um, to to be worthy of be giving a chance to to just explore something, but to need to argue for some kind of let's say. Um, the need to substantiate what you're doing as something that is uh, of great benefit for the society, for interdisciplinary research, for whatever contemporary things that people might think about. In other words, what you need, what what you're doing should be, in some sense, um, you know, it should be en vogue. It should be kind of sexy. It should, you know, deliver everything that we consider nowadays to be worth achieving. Um, 
But when we think about philosophy or, or philology for that matter, or, or maybe other studies that go into this direction, there it's not always obvious what this result might be. And because it is difficult to grasp and somewhat not so easy to, to argue for in a way that seems immediately persuasive, like you cannot, I think it's difficult to give somebody a good elevator pitch of why to add a Gigiana city. So um, some, somebody who is an outsider, let's say. Yeah. And I think because of these two, two things, A, things are driven by money and controlled by institutions who are actually often outsiders to the discipline you're working in, um, combined with the, with the short living of, of positions and the difficulty to, to acquire funding, how it happens in academia. People are asked to produce more and more in less and less time and positions, you know, uh, or the duration of positions growing smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. All of these factors combined seem to make it difficult to devote yourself to something that's uh, possibly a lifelong journey. And it seems to me that in the past there have been more such possibilities. And generally, I think also that the study of languages was considered to be of a greater value. Um, but I think that probably this, um, this is a question to be asked somebody who is in the business a little bit longer than me, somebody who could actually see this, yeah, see this happening in, uh, in their lifetime. There must be a couple of them. And I know that there is a couple of interesting articles written about this. I mean, you remember the one from Pollock, for instance, yeah, he wrote about this. Huh? Yes. Right. I wonder then also, what were the, if we talk, stick with causes and conditions, what were the causes and conditions of the flourishing of this discipline at the time it did? The late 1800s, I suppose, or 1800s, early 1900, uh, yes, early 1900s, yeah. that sort of period, I think. I wonder what the causes and conditions of that flourishing were. Hmm. Yeah, it seems that the old aristocracies, they had a um, slightly different approach to education, so it seems. I mean, you know, I, I have to smile about this because I think um, this is a little bit a uh, slippery, uh, slippery slope, huh? uh, this, uh, this whole discussion, right? Because um, many people would think about that imperialism was exclusively bad, isn't it? Yeah. On the other hand, uh, you can see that many of the achievements that have been made could only be made on account of the explorations of these people. And I do not want to say it was uh, good or bad or whatever it was. I'm just saying that there seemed to have been in these areas, in these times, a certain appreciation for, uh, for acquiring knowledge for the sake of acquiring it. And whether what, what precisely the interests of the individual are, you know, I, I, I do not want to dare to say or, or even go into that because, you know, I cannot read uh, dead people's minds. I'm sure that many people will say it is a form of cultural appropriation. They were looking down on others, you know, like they devoted their lives to study something only to prove that their culture is superior or whatnot. Ever motives it might be that uh, people have in mind there. But uh, there is still this one thing that is undeniable is that people were given the opportunity to devote themselves to study something foreign and devote their lives to this. And this is certainly something that nowadays does not seem to be so easy. I mean, how should I justify 
that I study something without that I actually know precisely um, what is the value of me studying this besides that I maybe figure out something, that I add something to the collective, let's say, um, to, the, to the collective accomplishments of documenting uh, something so that others, you know, um, might reflect on that, might learn something, whatever it may be, for the sake of documentation, for instance. But, you know, this kind of, that you study something for the sake of studying it, um, because it gives you joy, or because the language is beautiful, or be just because the topic is interesting, and it might have something to offer, this, uh, this, this simple idea does not seem to be reason enough to do something. And then, of course, somebody would say, yeah, I mean, what should you do with Sanskrit? Or Tibet. Why doing this? Yeah. Why translating something? You know, like what is the point of it? What does it contribute? Yeah. And how does my department earn from this? And how many? And look what we have to pay you as a teacher. Yeah. And how many students do you have? Yeah. What is it all worth? Yeah. In monetary terms, of course, then you're always uh, almost one of the last in the food chain. Almost always. And this is, I think. Um, yeah, part of, of, of the decline. Things are not supported for the sake of maintaining a field of study where many things are unexplored and to do it just for that sake. I, I, I do not know if I'm phrasing myself so clearly, but I guess you, you, you get what I'm hinting at. Yeah. Yes, I think it's very interesting what you're saying. You see, for instance, I mean, if, if we suppose that you go to university not out of the interest to study something exotic for the sake of doing it out of interest, but let's say you go there and you going there should contribute to the general economics, meaning you should get a job. There must be something for you to do. And you're at least that you're studying there um, together with your peers that should be enough to sustain uh, the university or, and also to create some, some, some uh, income on top of that. And I think when universities are run more and more like corporations, which they do, um, then of course you're looking for, for seminars where you have a lot of attendances, right? I mean, the best thing, of course, is like you have the hall full and only one teacher and one tutor. Hmm? So, but in order to do this, um, I cannot ask of them too much because the more I ask of them, the fewer will attend, isn't it? Hmm? So this is then why people rather want to have me, of course, like, I don't know, uh, Buddhism and film, yeah, content contemporary Buddhism, the role of women in Buddhism, Buddhism and vegetarianism, Buddhism and globalism, yeah? uh, Buddhism and whatever not, because it sounds kind of contemporarily nice. Everybody knows the Dalai Lama seems to be some good virtues out there. So um, we try to bring it into context. Yeah? Right. But if I keep on talking like this, you know, I will just repeat one superficial thing that people anyhow already know. Yeah? <laughs> and um, you know, by doing so, in some sense, I, I could say I just repeat uh, assumptions uh, and, and, and biases, and probably I also foster some of them. And then people go out 
like everywhere and think I, I know what X is, I know what Y is, and I actually do not really need to make any effort in order to figure anything out. It's all, it's all very easy and, and, and that's the world, right? Um, and frankly, I do not know where this attitude comes from. I really have no idea. I just observe that it is like this, you know, like the courses always should be easy. Never ask too much of a student, you know, like, and, and when they do not get a good grade, yeah, then can you see that they somehow get a better grade, you know, because otherwise the student might be unhappy. You know? And, you know, like in my world, I do not understand all of this well-being, uh, to be frank, because I am wondering about what, what is it that we are actually doing there? And I thought we are there to learn something from one another, from each other. Um, and yeah, and this idea that one should not ask anything for something and that everything comes from nothing. And this is really something I have no idea where it's, where it's coming from. I think uh, this is, I don't know, this, this you have to ask people like, I don't know who. <laughs> Part of what you're saying there, it seems, is you're saying, well, if, if it's an educational institution, then it would behave differently to how it's behaving. In other words, what uh, part of what you're saying is, I thought we were here to learn something, and I thought we were here to um, be, uh, I suppose, educated um, on a topic, and that, that requires work, uh, hard work, and uh, demand, measured demand, uh, to direct that work. But that you're you're saying that you've noticed that that's not always the emphasis or always the priority and so one might conclude from that if the educational institution is not educating then perhaps it's not an educational institution what is it then what would you say if we were to follow that logic mm. and say take a fresh eyes you'd never heard of university before and you were to look at what what goes on in in the departments that you're thinking of now mm. and you would think what what is this institution sort of, what's, what, what would you call it if you had to give it a new name? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, I have a very concrete feeling about it, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm lacking a good term on how to call it. Probably I would something approximating, uh, something approximating a school, you know, I, I, I think might be more like it. You see, like why I'm saying this is, is that when you speak, put children into a school, it's not really that they come there um, on their own volition and they choose what they want to engage in. You know, there is just a certain set of things that are probably by general agreement and in terms of, I don't know, uh, uh, history, um, however you want to call it, you know, there is a couple of, of conditions and then somehow it turned out that there is a couple of subjects that are deemed necessary to be studied, right? And they are different, of course, across cultures and times, but we are there and there is a couple of things that are deemed necessary and you put the people there and the only thing you ask them to is just acquire this set of uh, basic knowledge, right? And once they have done this, they're sent away. And that's it, basically, right? This is the, this is the, system of a school and I think I at least I didn't really experience school at a place where they say okay I mean what is your interest um, why do we why do we go into this and not something else so you see like the idea of a of a critical reflective mind is not really so much there in a school uh, there is a curricula and it's pretty much non-negotiable right and when I go to university I would expect that you know like people 
rather than getting knowledge, they are getting tools on how to acquire knowledge. And these tools, they start to use themselves and they are responsible for this, not the teacher, right? The teacher is only responsible for handing them the tools. Hmm? And what I think is there lacking in the university is that it's turning more and more into a school as I just described it. Um, yeah, I do not know how you would call that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I guess I know what you had in mind, but I probably not the term, the precise term you were thinking about. I wasn't thinking myself of a, of a particular term. I was just following your argument. And uh, uh, mm. and that, that question came from there. Well, one might ask, so what? So what? What's mm. the, what are the consequences uh, of this? Um, what's the big deal if this mm -hmm. decline occurs? Um, in say tibetan studies buddhist studies something like that yeah exactly yeah this is this is the point yeah i don't know frankly i mean obviously the world keeps on turning right um the question maybe is not so much what are we losing but um what what could we gain um if we are not losing it so this is more what i'm thinking about right i mean in the end of the day of course you always can say like who cares yeah i mean uh, pretty much our smartphones are nowadays good enough to do the math for us so why bothering teaching the kids in school also no point right yeah, there is many things that where that that are in some sense pointless yeah why learning another language you know just let some people program uh, the deep l really good yeah and you just keep on talking to ChatGPT a little bit, you know, in, in your free time. And then why bother about anything you know? in the end? I, I mean, I could simply reply. But uh, of course, like what I would say as well, uh, because it has something to offer. Hmm? I mean, in the end of the day, why are we learning? I think uh, the answer might be twofold. Um, one of them is for as long, you know, when we're talking in the, in the context of Buddhism or spirituality, I would think that it's always a personal quest. So if you really want to figure out something that you're really truly interested in and that you have the suspicion, you know, might change something in your life for the better and by extension also for everybody whom, with whom you're in contact with, you know, then it might be worthwhile pursuing something um, a little bit more intensive, a little bit more exhaustive perhaps. And on the other hand, I could, could say, well, I mean, since... Contemporarily speaking, there seems to be interest in spirituality. People seem to have uh, gotten to the idea that there is certain that there is a certain sense of well-being that is not mechanically uh, produced, um, but that is probably uh, a result of one's mental state. Yeah, there is the positive psychology, and like I said, there is meditation research and mindfulness and a lot of interest in yoga and, and all of these things. So um, to have a couple of people, not everybody, not everybody has to do everything, but at least a couple of people who acquire enough knowledge to really be able to translate one thing from one cultural context into the other might be worthwhile for a lot of people. Um, so I think there is something to gain. What do we have to lose? Of course, in some sense, nothing. When we function now, we will also continue to function in one way or the other. Yeah, it's very interesting. And um, I think we'll move on from this soon, but 
I do have another question about it, which you, you're emphasizing there, learning languages, mm. primary languages in which the texts are written and in the field in which one's interested, for example, Sanskrit, Tibetan, I suppose, Pali, that Chinese, that sort of thing, classical Chinese. Um, mm. What are some of the other important skills and disciplines? And maybe this will start to move towards the subject of what it is a philologist does and and you know how you've been conducting your recent projects but what other skills do you think are important if you could build your own i suppose curriculum if you could build your own philologist your own tibetologist your own, you know of course language right. is very important we've discussed that now what else do you think is important that might be getting overlooked or might might be a little bit in similar decline hmm. you know i think a certain I mean, what I recognized the most personally, um, and this is something that has nothing to do with language at all, I'd say, but is the general um, mindset of, um, again, of having a little bit more, what I consider a little bit more healthy understanding regarding what is your place in, in relation to um, let's say your surroundings and whatever it is that you're confronted with. So uh, what I mean by this is that uh, to recognize that you don't know something, I think um, can be considered a virtue um, because it gives you the opportunity to improve on that. Hmm? And I think this is one of the fundamental uh, things in, in Buddhism, yeah? that you can, for instance, say, well, to, to realize um, that you have a problem, that there is some sorrow and that you're unhappy is in some sense a big blessing because without such a realization, you will just remain ignorant and never be able to change anything. It's like, it's, you know, it's like um, in some sense, you could say that problems are the fuel that keep your car going towards a destination yeah? um, where you then at one point uh, do not need that kind of fuel any longer once you arrived. Yeah? To use maybe it's a little bit stupid analogy, but first thing that comes to mind anyway. Um, so you see, and I, I think it seems that nowadays it is more and more the case that um, to ask the question is already almost similar to admitting that you don't know something, which seems to be considered a, a problem by, by many students, almost like a fault. Nobody wants to admit that they are doing something wrong. Everybody is afraid to make a mistake. And frankly, I don't know what, where that's coming from, but uh, this is also something that, that I could see changing. Um, and I'm not that old, you know, but um, already, you know, like, 10, 15 years ago when I started studying in the university and when I see how, how students are dealing with this now already there seems to be quite a bit of a change. Everybody is afraid of their grade. Everybody is afraid to, to answer. And when I say everybody, of course, I do not really mean everybody, right? But um, uh, as a general tendency. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, and there I would... I would think that it would be really nice to give somebody an introductory course about the healthy, uh, the healthiness of a, a negative emotion towards uh, developing your, your yourself to a more uh, resistant and easygoing person who can see that uh, in the pursuit of trying to learn something to to get hold of of some of your shortcomings is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. 
and yeah, this is the the one thing that I really think is, is tremendously lacking. You know, I I had a couple of courses, you know, where people they will just not ask any question, you know, they will not say anything, you know, and then in the end they come, yeah, why is my grade so bad? I don't know, because maybe if you would participate, you know, maybe then you would figure out what it is that you're struggling with, then maybe you would figure out some stuff that you can work on, you know, if you would approach other people, if you would engage with your peers, you know, like maybe there is something to gain from it. But this kind of a very simple, let's say, uh, more moderate and less personal attitudes towards yourself is not such, uh, I mean, yeah, would, would be quite healthy, you know, and um, how to say this? I mean, ultimately also there, I feel a certain contradiction in the thing itself. I mean, like if you have an issue admitting towards that you have shortcomings, then why do you go studying, you know? I mean, like that you go somewhere to study something is actually the admission of guilt in itself, right? In terms of you go somewhere to study something because you don't know. Otherwise, why would you go study? So where is the issue to admit that you don't know something? This is this feels for me. Uh, um, I mean, it's almost it's almost ironical in some sense, yeah? isn't it? Yes, I, I see your point. You know, um, this issue, which as I mentioned was fairly recently discussed uh, by Alexandra Aguayas. He recently discussed this in, a, in an episode and it prompted him, these sorts of issues prompted him to retire as a professor eventually and uh, begin his own private academy, he calls it, uncredited, but a place where he can, you know, teach what he knows. He's a, a, great polyglot, he's teaching all kinds of languages, Old Norse, Sanskrit, Latin, you know, most of the Romance languages, modern, you know, Old English, that sort of thing, as well as various different history of religion and culture courses, etc. You know, that's one move, is to say, okay, what are we going to do about this? Well, we'll leave the uh, institution and set up an alternative situation where an island, if you want, of rigor, maybe, uh, where, where we can have a different sort of culture, educational culture. Of course, that has its pros and cons, that, that approach. Um, others would say, no, we have to try to reform the institution or, or perhaps, uh, you know, congregate in those institutions that still hold certain co- sorts of values that one might be more aligned with. You, you listed several of them, for instance, you're at University of Vienna. And you're saying one of the reasons that you're so happy to be there is that it's rigor and um, quality. So uh, I propose two things there, I suppose. What, how would you imagine this could be addressed? Or is it terminal, do you think? I think um, it can be addressed by trying to be a good, good example. Uh, this is how I see it. Um, in, in some terms, it's very easy. You know, I, I think it's, it's the same with spirituality, right? Um, I mean, when you're an easygoing, chill guy who seems to be dealing quite well uh, with problems and uh, issues or whatever difficult situations at hand might, might, might be there on your table right now, and people see you 
despite stress and problems, you seem to be kind of at ease and in peace with the situation. You know, and maybe at one point they will come to you and ask you how you do this. Huh? So that's one of the very old, old ways, I suppose, how you do this. And I think um, that this is the only this is the only way I can really think of it. You know, to go somewhere and to show people with examples that what you're doing um, has value and that you inspire people by showing them that what they're learning is um, for their benefit and that it's not cannot only be measured in, in terms of uh, positions, uh, careers, jobs, bank accounts, uh, wh whatever there might be, because intuitively most of the people know anyway. Mm. Well, very interesting. Thank you, Julian. Maybe we could pivot now and talk about your Indrabuti project. I wonder if we might use this particular project as, in a sense, a, a case study of how one conducts the sort of work that you do. First of all, I'd like to know, how do you select a project like this to work on? How do you decide, okay, I'm going to work on this particular question or this particular area I'm going to investigate? How do you set the parameters for your investigation? And how do you justify that? to, I suppose, grants, uh, uh, boards, and so on. Uh, what are those sorts of considerations? And then mm. you form a collaboration. You have done that with Dr. Geloff, Dr. Torsten Geloff. How do you work that out? Mm -hmm. um, and then what, what are the nuts and bolts of a project like that? What are the steps involved in going through this, what I believe has been a multi-year project, and you're almost at the end of it? Yes. I mean, first of all, First things first, um, how do you select something? Well, I mean, in some sense, that's relatively easy in some, in some respect, at least. Uh, I mean, in this particular case, you know, it was brought to our attention. I mean, both uh, my colleague and I, we knew of the existence of, uh, of that text before we worked on it, but none of us really engaged deeper into it. And then, um, you know, it was brought to my colleagues attention that there is a couple of materials by which we could improve on it. And it actually started as some kind of, um, let's say, hobby endeavor. Yeah. So um, we had this habit to read texts together just privately um, without that we had any particular intention of, let's say, doing anything with that besides reading it. So we did this just for the sake of fun and um, yeah, then at one point, it, we, we reached a certain state where we thought, okay, like maybe we should turn this into something full-fledged, more rigorous. Um, so we applied. Yeah? We put together an application. I mean, these things are rather lengthy, right? Um, we, I, I flew over to him. He was in Thailand at the time. We spent two weeks together on work on this application and put like our whatever it is, 20... 20-page proposal uh, together, arguing basically for the necessity of uh, doing this again, simply because the status of the text is uh, very bad. And its importance for understanding of the tradition uh, uh, rather, rather great. So that, that is it, how it how it happened in short term. So I, I think the answer to you is if you have an interest um, 
for for your subject and you just start exploring even if it is at random you will sooner or later come to a point where you see that there is too many unknowns there uh, that have to be resolved before you actually can satisfy um, your curiosity on account of which uh, you started exploring something and this is simply because the you know the the array of genres and literature is uh, is so vast you know and the work that has been done is uh, comparatively little so in that terms everybody uh, who is in this field of indology or tibetology or buddhist studies is uh, actually very fortunate because there is like just so many loads of things you know that you can that you can work on that nobody ever has actually looked at mm -hmm. um so that is something very easy and then yeah i mean the the more difficult part is certainly uh the the, the question of funding so you see like we are very happy um because in the german research council from which we got the grant they are still comparatively com conservative mm -hmm. I mean, much more conservative than I think in many of the Anglo-American institutions where this idea of uh, interdisciplinary contemporary uh, uh, contemporary relevance and all of these uh, questions and also questions of that, that pertain to uh, different political and ideological uh, 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 groups and, and all of these interests that are at play are much stronger. Yeah. So there we were actually like, quite happy that our project was innovative enough uh, in its own discipline and uh, it was considered quiet enough to be worthy of funding um, and that was enough but um, one also should probably mention that uh, that is not necessarily the case I mean we were lucky because you will never know on I mean who is to, who is to evaluate um, your proposal right and um yeah and this is something that is always a little bit like a gamble yeah i mean if you're good and if you're a little bit above quality of uh, above average of course this raises your chances of a success for funding significantly and yet this is not enough because i mean those people um who are selected are always in a in a group of other people who are probably equally uh, excellent and who don't get selected and you could also be always one of these groups depending on who is supposed to read your stuff yeah and what is this particular background of that person and who else uh, applied in the same moment for you or with the with the more or less uh, similar ideas so i think there is many causes and conditions that assemble and uh, at least half of them you cannot really influence by any means i suppose so i think it is a combination of being uh, having some merit, of course, but also being at the at the same moment at the right time, uh, right place, yeah, and uh, and uh, and also certain amount of luck. This is how I see it. So I mean, I could not claim this is just because we are so great. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's certainly not the case. Yeah. I mean, we were actually quite lucky that in that in these days, still, somebody did give us funding to do such a work. And, and honestly, uh, none of us actually did expect that it would uh, get through, yeah. to be frank. Yeah. <laughs> and could you, could you give a sketch of, of 
why you why this why this subject why this text why this reedition mm. you know of course now you're you're mm. at the end so you have an even clearer idea i i suppose but at that point what were you setting out to do and why you see like um i mean both of us we are interested in uh, in in tantric buddhism and none of us had tried to delve deeper into uh the earlier parts and their origins and we you know we were just wondering what to do next we had worked together on some things and then you know this text popped up and it's just uh, shall we have a look what it is uh, just because we trust our teachers and when they say hey this might be worth checking out and maybe that's interesting for you guys we said okay let's give it a shot let's let's see why not so you could say it is um probably in some sense a transmission yeah so uh, uh trust to trust to the people that that you know have achieved something in your area and uh um you're you're sure that when they suggest something to you that it has a reason so we thought okay like why not in lack of anything better to do uh we just gave it a shot basically so there was honestly there was at least for my part there was not uh, a great deal of uh Uh, thought behind that you know i cannot pretend that this is following a long term plan and a deep analysis of many things it just so happened yeah i would say but uh, what i could see is that these early traditions uh, they are very fascinating in and out of themselves and they seem to me to be a little bit something you know like different than um then these yogini tantra traditions everything that came later you know uh, in, into tibet and which seems to be which seems to me a much more um fixed set of uh, ideas and 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 practices and what you can see in this early text is for instance that they seem to struggle uh with others they seem to struggle maybe also with their surrounding and there is the there you you can see that there is something something in this text where you have the feeling they are negotiating their way within within their 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 surrounding and their times and you can really get a gist of how how this might all have been at the times where not everything was already well established you know and uh nobody would ask any any questions or doubt anything not everything was totally clear from the beginning and i think that to see something of a progressive nature also a polemical nature also something that's ironical and that is not you know only describing uh, doctrines and philosophies but which is trying to give you um a general view you know on 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 something much larger um, how to find your your way within a world of different ideas with the developing of of new of of new rituals uh, of new ways of approaching something that already has been and so on and so forth so i think to see this kind of evolution and and, and development and to see this progressive spirit is something that is um that is very interesting I, i i guess also to understand where some of the ideas that seem to be that seem very natural uh might have been coming from it again you can see that not everything was clear always from the beginning yeah? but it's a constant negotiation of uh of of terms and nothing is really uh nothing is really permanent in in that sense yeah?
so I learned uh, a lot by by studying this scripture. That's very interesting to hear you talk about that sense of of progress or evolution. Often, I think one hears a narrative of these sorts of texts being, in a sense, deposited into the mind of the writer through mm. some means or another divine revelation, something like that. So it's quite interesting to hear a, a, a tradition being, if you like, worked out over time and, and evolving. What are the main differences that would you say, characteristic differences between the sort of text you're working on and the Yogini Tantras? You mentioned that, that, that there was some significant differences there. What were you thinking of when you said that? You see what I was thinking of that what you can see is that in the in the development of um, Buddhism in India and then when it went to to Tibet in these two spreads and then in Tibet itself that there is emphasis um, on on different aspects I would say and what what you can see is like there are certain things of course that are that that are present all the time um, but they are not giving the same emphasis really and what what you can see is that there is a that there is, in some sense, there is a shift of, um, let's say, what is considered the proper spiritual program. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that Tantra evolved, the more it also was, in some sense, uh, ritualized. Um, and I think this seems to be, to me, something like almost, I don't know how to say this, uh, like, like a human trait, maybe, in, in, in the sense that you know, whenever something is established and people build on that, that you do not need to negotiate anymore or argue about why we have this, but you only work with this already is established and it was not questions anymore. And then we elaborate on that. So I would guess that, you know, a tradition has uh, built up more rituals um, than getting rid of them in, in the time this this, this, this religion or this spiritual group um, exists and continues to, to, uh, to develop. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in many of the yogini tantras, or when you also now look, look to Tibet, you can see that there is simply, there is simply uh, more, more, more of this esoteric uh, setting in terms of ritual that is there. And in the earlier scriptures, of course, you also have this thing like initiation, mandalas, da, 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 yeah? but all of these things, they are less, they are less well-defined, you know, and they are to some extent, uh, they, they have not been worked out into a universal, universally existing program hmm? that is not really ought to change anymore. You know, that it was simply not the early times. There was simply nothing as this is how we do it. People had to figure out and there were different ways of, of how you start to engage with something new. Right. So there was a greater sense of variety, I, I suppose. And of course, um, when you look into the later tantric tradition and the yogini tantras, of course, like every tantric tradition has their own way of doing things. Yeah. This is not to say that there is not a variety. Uh, there is a, var- a great variety in the details, but not necessarily a great variety in the general approach. Mm. Uh, this is how I would see it. And I think that in the earlier scriptures, you can see that there is, that there is more of such things. In some sense, they were a bit more, yeah, they were a bit more 
uncommon, a bit more wild, a bit more revolutionary in, in, in some respects. It's at least my personal feeling about that. Mm. Mm. That's very interesting indeed. And you mentioned uh, initiation and you mentioned Mandela. Um, I wonder when we consider the Indrabuti text that you're finishing the re-edition of, mm. are there any uh, specifics that you, that you have in mind, these, these ways of doing things that are different from the, from the later tantric tradition? Does anything spring out to say, gosh, this, this, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think this was the way it was done, given how it's done later? You know, the interesting thing in, in his text is actually that he gives you, um, that he tries to give you a comprehensive presentation of one topic. Yeah, his topic is, as the title says, Jnana. So Jnana is, I don't know how we call this, most of the people think of Jnana at least uh, as, as, as Buddha Jnana, uh, Tibetans say Yeshe, so some kind of um, untainted, uh, pure, perfected cognition, you know, the way way how the Buddha sees and perceives the world, right? Some people say, uh, I don't know, like Buddha wisdom or maybe gnosis, you know, not in the uh, Christian gnostic sense, but just in relation to the origin of the world. You know, so some, I don't know how to say this, some primordial, pre-lucid way of awareness, you know, something like that. Many different ways, I think, of describing that, yeah. So... And Indra Bhuti sets out to tell you how do you achieve at how at, at the point how the Buddha sees the world. And he does this by uh, getting rid of wrong assumptions of how to achieve this. And he tells you what is the right view. Then he backs up his right view by scripture, uh, which were circulating at his time. And then he sets out to give you a couple of practical um of practical aspects uh, that entails. So that is to say how the most developed practitioner acts and behaves in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is his main, his main theme. Yeah? How do you get to this jnana? And you know the, the point that he makes often, and this is, I find actually interesting, and this is also why I would call it progressive in a certain sense. Um, you know, he is interested in making it clear what is provisional and what is not provisional and how, how the context of Tantra has to be understood in terms of how do I achieve this jnana. And it seems that, you know, there is a couple of parameters that, that are important, but all the rest, you know, is maybe of secondary importance. And, you know, like he doesn't mention any particular rights or anything like this. The only thing he mentions, okay, um, you do the standard thing. Yeah, you, um, you, you rejoice. Yeah, you, um, uh, you confess your sins. You develop bodhicitta, stuff like this. Yeah, and there is conventions, you know, like you can meditate on form deities. You know, there is, uh, uh, there is, different, um, there is different philosophical positions. Some of them, they have conventional use, but they are not of ultimate relevance. And he goes through this uh, rather quickly. And there is also other practices that are around. There is the idea of great bliss through sexual practices, you know, and there is other states of mind, you know, that some people consider to be able to do something. And he basically rejects everything and he gives you a feeling of what he thinks this jnana is about. Yeah? So it's a, it's a living 
a being who can act and interact with the world. And there is nothing deep, scholastic, uh, philosophic and intellectual about it, but he just gives you, let's say, something that we would consider a down-to-earth common sense presentation of somebody who uh, thought his thing kind of through and who wants to give it the, the, the correct feeling yeah? and, and, and uh, who, who wants to reject um, intellectual uh, uh, debates about that topic and who wants to set things straight in the sense so this is how it is and not the other way around yeah and stop arguing and making a fuss about things and do not go into uh, fuzzy little uh, details that just carry us away from uh, from the main point something like this and this is of course interesting because I mean, of course, in, in, in Tibet, there is also a lot of stuff like this teaching, pointing out the nature of mind, yeah, every, some stuff that was already there with the Kadampas and so on and so forth. So this is also something that does not have a, quite an equivalent, I think, uh, in India, this particular genre of, uh, of teaching. So there is also some progressive to that. So they also use, you, and you see that I... I have this feeling that whenever there is coming up something new and people might be carried away by, by all of that stuff and think that doing the ritual for the ritual's sake, you know, um, is, is enough and they actually maybe forget that they do it and they're carried away by this multitude of stuff. Then sometimes people come and want to, to set you straight and say, okay, do not forget the main point. And little bit like uh, a feeling like this I have now after having studied this. I mean, for sure, there is probably people have an awful lot to, to, to say about what else uh, you all can find there. Um, but this is just something that I happen to uh, recognize as something that was striking me. It is very interesting. How is it that Indrabhuti suggests one ought to go about obtaining this city and what's he disregarding instead i mean what he is certainly um disregarding is that you have that you are influenced falsely um by provisional buddhist doctrine particularly that that you find in the tantra so to give you one example in tantra uh, probably you, you, you know this and many will know this, that uh, we have a lot of systems, you know, in which, let's say, something mundane gets a super mundane touch by being associated uh, with, with certain qualities. Let's say, for instance, we have the five skandhas, you know, uh, they are the five, uh, 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 the five Buddha families and each of them has a particular quality, right? Each each color, you know, in the, uh, in the, in, in the form skanda, yeah, that you can see each of these color is again associated with the five Buddha families and each gnosis is the counterpart to one disturbance and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, when you study this a lot, um, he could say, oh, yeah, then, then, then you might get the impression that, uh, you know, like everything around you is, is a pure realm and you're already a Buddha, yeah, because... Um, you're made of the constituent elements and all of them are actually in their nature already. Buddha, yeah? So then he is just saying, yeah, that's all very well, but I mean, who did ever become a king by pronouncing I am a king? 
So this is then, in, in, in some sense, his rhetoric to deal with that matter in short terms. Yeah? And this is, of course, something that's uh, quite refreshing, yeah? um, in the sense that, you know, the feeling is to get God, all of this doctrine is very nice, uh, but it ultimately does not serve any other purpose, uh, you know, than building up uh, a system. Yeah, but this is in itself not really of any relevance. No? So, yeah, stuff like this he is doing. Yeah, he is, or he is talking about, you know, like Yogacara, for instance. Yeah, like uh, we have all of these philosophers, you know, is things, uh, is the mind endowed with aspects? Is it without aspects and whatnot? All there is. So, she also tackles these things and say, yeah, you know, if it would not have any aspects, you know, and it would be just, uh, you know, in, in some sense, a blank, black state yeah how could this be uh, uh, the the cognition of the buddha yes and how could he then distinguish right from wrong and how could he act in the world at all you know so he gives you the feeling that although all of these different tenet system and and, and doctrines they you can acquire some knowledge through this and it can be a means but it never will be more than that and uh, again, you have the feeling he wants to tell people, do not carry away by that too much. Yeah? Keep, don't, don't lose your way. Yeah? Don't get sidetracked. No? Do not branch off something like this. Yeah? So those are some things he says not to do. What does he say to do to obtain this city? Yeah. This is the thing, actually. I mean... What he says to you is, um, you do what people always have done. Yeah, you develop bodhicitta. You be a good practitioner. Yeah, you you see uh, that you're a good student. Yeah, you uh, check that you have a good teacher. Yeah, you do not lose your track. You're not being carried around by by fancy stuff that people have to talk. And basically, let's say. Um, if you 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 know your path, yeah, you know how to distinguish what is necessary from what is not necessary, and then probably you will get there. So I mean, in some sense, he doesn't make a big fuss about it. It's more about, you know, in in this very, in the sense that he rejects many things and then gives you, let's say, some down to earth simple things that you would think they are not super new in some sense. Um, he he puts you a little bit back in, in your place. And at the same time, you know, then he is giving you all of these interesting esoteric quotations from, from early yoga tantras, where, where he describes the qualities of the mind rather than telling you, I mean, he tells you how to get there in easy terms, but not gives you any specific tantric practices in order to do this. So there is not like the idea, okay, you do this practice and then, you know, everything is guaranteed, nothing like this, yeah? He says rather the opposite, yeah? Nothing is guaranteed if you insist too much on something that's really nothing more than, uh, than a provisional means. Hmm? And then I think he wants to give you guidance in the sense that you know where you're heading to by giving you the qualities of of that kind of cognition as, as he sees it. Mm. And some of these qualities is, is things that uh, ring many bells for everybody who has read Tantra that he says, like, I don't know, the mind is, um, the mind is, is pervasive, for instance, it is like space, all of these kinds of things. Mm. 
So it's it's more like he is giving you a notion, yeah, a, a feeling. He sets your path. He he sets your goal, and then he says, okay, all of this like provisional things that you might find on the way might be interesting, might be worth, but it's not really necessary. And yeah, just just continue to do, huh? to do your thing. But he doesn't really tell you what that actually is. Yeah. <laughs> he leaves that open. And this might also be actually on purpose because it was not his intention, I think, to say, okay, uh, you do, um, I don't know, the Guchia Samaja system of the Jnana Pada according to blah, blah, blah's instructions. Yeah. Uh, rather than, you know, having a mistaking view of the Guchia Maja system according to blah, 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 according to blah, blah, blah's instruction because he is actually an issue in the third path of whatever you know like not this kind of stuff yeah i wonder if we might might talk a bit about process so you're creating a re-edition of this mm -hmm. indrabuti text one might imagine okay scholars such as yourself you you get the text you sit down and with your colleague and you you translate it and uh you write that up and job done but there's a little bit more to it to creating an edition isn't there a critical edition um what, yes, yes. what is that process? Could you say something about what is, what is, what is a critical edition and, and what, what were the specific considerations in creating this one? So first of all, a critical edition means that um, you first of all, you collect uh, all the sources in which the text is transmitted. When you say different sources, right there I think is perhaps something that might be obvious when it's pointed out, but perhaps not so obvious unless one thinks about it for a moment, you mean to say that, well, surely the text is the text. What's there to compare? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, of course, uh, might have been true at one uh, specific point in time, right? Um, no, but um, how to say this in the best way? So uh, when, let's just assume um, you write something down, yeah, and I find that very inspiring. What you have to write down, and um, then I make a five copies of it and give it to five of my friends, yeah, and they do the same thing, yeah? and then we pass it on, hmm? and then it happens. What well, has to happen at one point? Somebody makes a slight mistake, yeah, or some piece of the paper gets little bit destroyed you know um or one of the sheets uh, is maybe lost you know and then uh, another guy you know who, who finds this cannot make sense of this and, and rearranges them but maybe makes a mistake um or somebody wants maybe to copy uh, the, the the copy i gave them you know but couldn't read one word really and thought ah probably it means this but unfortunately his interpretation was wrong you know like stuff like this so as things are being transmitted, um, there appear different versions, yeah? simply because humans make mistakes. Mm. And then there is also a couple of other things, you know, that can create issues, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, materials are not durable forever and whatnot all there is, right? Um, so, and then when this process continues uh, for a couple of hundred years, uh, then, then of course, uh, we will see that there is uh, a couple of variations. Hmm? And then also, you know, like this short poem that 
that we composed, you know, and that I gave to my friend. He found it nice. And then he also asked a friend of his who was, you know, capable to read uh, English, uh, but also Spanish, in which he wanted to have it translated for his girlfriend. So uh, then he translated it into Spanish, you know. And then, you know, in Spain, they also find it you know, like equally uh, fascinating, this little piece of poem. And they did the same stuff, you know, in their culture, you know. And so then people will end up yeah, in let's say 500 years, 600, 700, 800 years, you know, and they will have, let's say, um, five, five canonical uh, versions of the poem that you wrote in uh, two languages. And then, you know, when we dig around and ask some of the friends, you know, they will see, yeah, but somebody has uh, maybe another copy that was not in the canon, you know, which was kept in his family, you know, for, for some centuries, right? And that is a little bit different. And then we collect all of the sources, you know, and uh, all of the versions and testimonies that we could find of, you know, how this poem went on in its life in which it was transmitted from person to person and group to group and so on and so forth. So then we have this bunch of texts and papers. And we, and because we want to know what, you know, but what was inspiring, you know, like so much for this first students of, uh, of Steve, yeah, then, um, we try, okay, is there anything else that Steve has written, you know? And um, well, who, who was this guy who translated Steve's poem into Spanish, you know? And what else has he done? And is there, you know, can we see any, you know, like any techniques, anything that can tell us, you know, something about uh, how this whole process happened? Can we see some patterns there? Is there any other information that we get? How to judge, like, which variant seems, you know, more close to how Steve usually expresses himself and whatnot? So then we start looking around and then I see, ah, you know, like uh, there is there is a line in, in Steve's poem that very much resembles a line of Shakespeare that I, I read somewhere else. So obviously he liked Shakespeare very much. So then I look into Shakespeare and see, ah, okay, now, now I see that line. It must be this. He had this in mind, you know, and then I start reading Shakespeare and then I find more things. And then I see, yeah, but in Shakespeare, you know, there is another, another quotation in there, you know, uh, of some other contemporary poem of poet of of his time you know and oh my god there is like a whole bunch of things you know that uh, that that steve must have in mind and he was influenced by and of course he knew everything you know that that shakespeare was reading you know and suddenly you know like a big world opens up you know and trying to make sense um of uh steve james's uh, uh uh poem you know and so and then we work our way through basically like this. We collect everything we have. We try to make sense of what is the process that is happening there. And can we, in some sense, try to figure out, you know, like what comes closest to uh, how, how did this person express himself probably? And what was he influenced by? What was he thinking? You know, like what, um, what was the stuff circulating? You know, what was important for him? Uh, can you see like reflections and traces of things that he must have in mind in his writing? So uh, that opens up a big world, of course. Yeah, you know, when you want to understand somebody's writing, it means that to some extent you're trying to understand uh, the mind of that person, a little bit like a profiler, right? Um, so when you want to understand the mind of a person, you want to you have to understand the times in which he was living. You have to understand the people he might have been in contact with. Yeah, you have in, in or in simple worlds, you know, understanding the mind uh, of a person means to understand 
the world in which he was living uh, with everything that that comes along with that so and then you know the addition of a of a small text yeah and its translation of course turns out to be a study of a uh, of a, of a yeah of a entire culture or a milieu of of people if you really want to pursue it i mean like in the best to your uh, abilities and in this process of course it is obvious that there is uh, only that much that you can do right i mean you cannot read everything i mean of course you can try yeah but when you have a, a set time frame and you have a, a a job to do you know and you live in this relative world then um you have to make a lot of um, compromises, let's call it. Yeah, you cannot do everything to the extent that it should it should be done, ideally speaking, right? And on the other hand, you know, this brings us a little bit back to 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 what we are attempting um, to talk about before. Um, why is it worth doing such a thing? Well, um, you learn awfully a lot about uh, uh, humanity and, and human thought, and you learn awfully a lot about uh, what is what is the relation between uh, the truth and um, how it is presented, right? Uh, something that you know a student will never see when. When, when, when the students read a, an article or a history book, is this world of thought yeah, that is uh, behind that, right? They will only see it uh, once they attempt to, to study something deeply uh, themselves. And when they then, again, uh, read a book, they will read it with this mindset of uh, caution, knowing the limitations of what can be known and uh, what cannot be known and where where is the limits hmm? and all of this will in fact make you uh, a more free person um, less reliable on on the opinion of other people because you will be gaining the tools and methods how to evaluate uh, what you have and uh, in in this terms you know scientific methodology is useful for everybody and this is also something that has nothing to do with for the studies of philology alone this is a general a general thing uh, that is a very very beneficial um, outcome of such way of studying and i think that since since uh, especially language is something that is almost i mean almost nothing is most is closer to us than than language yeah is how we are raised, how we make sense of the world. Yeah, I mean, we all think in words, right? Uh, um, and we, in some extent, we even feel uh, through words in the sense that even though often we experience that something is or lies beyond our grasp, but that that then we try to express it, you know, in forms of poetry. We find analogies, you know, like we express ourselves through speaking. Yeah, and this process is also nothing that is, you know, it is not even confined to be able to read and write, is it? Yeah, not even that. So, and I think to see uh, how does the process of of a text, yeah, that is 
just, I mean, is the closest expression of language, the closest thing that we have or that, that shapes our world and our feelings and the way how we perceive everything, you know, how, how, how their information is carried out and how it comes about and how it changes and what people all can do with that and actually also how much you can be manipulated, you know, is something that I think is almost impossible to, to, to imagine the range of what, what is all covered there. But at least maybe you can get some kind of a, some kind of a tiny fraction of what all is there that makes you up as a being that shapes you, that influences you and, and that, that builds up the, your entire surrounding, your civilization, what not all there is, right? And, and, and just to even think about it, let, let's say for one term, yeah, only in the university, and to try to understand what is the influence of all, all of this for you, you know, I think it can be helpful. In this specific project, were there any particular challenges in that process that you've described there? There's gathering of the sources, there's reading beyond yeah, yeah. them. What sort of challenges did you face in this specific case? I mean, the most obvious things is that um, the words don't make sense to you. I mean, like you transcribe something, yeah, and you do not understand the syntax or the grammar. Something is corrupted, yeah. Uh, then you look into the Tibetan translation and you see, well, I mean, I do not really get how this can correspond to anything that uh, we can think of what might have been underlying the corruption that we have at hand. Yeah. So then we start to look around, you know, is there some other expression in his writing where we can get, let's say, some idea from. So um, put it in very simple terms, some texts, um, they are, they reached a level of corruption that in some places is so bad uh, that it almost seems impossible to really have an idea um, of, of, of what was once standing there unless we would find uh, a really good source that Indarbuti wrote himself, you know, and that he vacuum sealed, put in a box and stored somewhere for us. Yeah? Unless that happens, you know, um, we are probably lost. And in other words, you know, this is one of the main challenges that, you know, very often things, they are corrupted to an extent that makes it very difficult to be sure what at all was going on there. And again, this is then something which, what makes you suspicious, you know, when you see that some people say, oh, this is what the Buddha said. That is a teaching, you know, uh, that is what Buddhism wants from you, you know, and you think, okay, how on earth can they know that? I mean, I've looked at the sources, you know, and I have no idea what's going on there, you know, and some people just come and, and claim that's, that's how it is. The Guiana city is this and that. Yeah, okay, on what basis? Hmm? And, and there you actually can see that where, where is the relevance of, of what we are doing? Yeah? I mean, you were asking for what is lost, you know, when all the disciplines go away. Well, nothing is lost if nobody's interested in that stuff. Yeah? But for as long, you know, is, uh, if, if people find or think that there is something to gain and they want to use it. And some of these people, they do not want to use it only as individuals who try to make sense of it for themselves and do not want to talk with others also about it. You know, as long as that is the case, you could still argue what is there probably is enough. You know? But as long as there is somebody who aspires to bring something into the world, who find that it is their duty since they live with others also to, to, to share with others, then I think it is maybe wise not to do so too fast and 
prematurely. And there might be the relevance. You know, it strikes me a little that if we take what you say seriously and to examine, let's say in terms of Buddhism or related subjects, meditation, yoga, you've mentioned that sort of thing. If one was to take seriously your, what you're saying there and think, well, how do I know what it is I'm saying here about that? Mm -hmm. uh, in whatever context it may be, uh, teaching or teaching others, for example, or perhaps even just in guiding one's own practice by certain principles and certain assumptions and so on. How do I know this is the case? Well, I heard it from someone. I read it, mm. I read it in a book. Um, I found it on a video on YouTube, something like this. Mm. It's, it strikes me that there would be, it strikes me that there wouldn't be very much left that one could really claim with certainty, or at least for a period of time, there would be great uncertainty while one sort of digs around and sees what, what can I actually establish here? Yeah, I think the point is then being careful huh? a little bit, yeah? not, not be too quick. Yeah? I, mean, if I'm, I mean, I gather that, for instance, you, with all of these more than 200 episodes and you have people talking from a variety of backgrounds, and for sure there is many things uh, where uh, the different speakers you have invited, they would hardly agree on, 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 on a couple of things right? There will be many people with many different approaches. So, I mean, then I, when I think about you, for instance, I would also think, well, um, you will scrutinize this. You will take the things from each individual that makes sense to you after you checked it out, right? I mean, what else can you do? No? And in some sense, for sure, uh, you as the person who listens to so many different individuals, all of them, they have their sense of, you know, what they think is right and wrong for sure, gives you a great variety of perspectives. So, I mean, in some sense, with every episode, I, I figure that you become a little bit freer person in, in, in some regard. Yeah? And maybe looking at it like, like that, I would also feel that this is the sense that people can make of this information. Of course, it does not mean that there is nothing to rely on. But at the same time, it means that um, one should maybe not rely too much on things that one does not really know and one maybe should step back a little bit and maybe um, see that that one gets the the foundation straight yeah i mean we often have the tendency to do the uh, second step before the third one or the third or fourth or fifth step before the first one and when we then see okay wait there is all of these problems so maybe i go back to for the to the foundation and check here and get the things straight you know and 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 and, and set my base properly you know and then i go on curious um but also carefully you know not to not too light-hearted you know like take take everything you know and uh, try to make sense of everything in yeah. so, i don't know something like this i suppose yeah yeah very interesting one thing i'd say since you brought it up that interviewing so many people has two things maybe that it's done for me along those lines is you met you use that phrase putting putting someone in their place it's certainly mm. given me a better sense of my place. That's quite a relief. I'll say that <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. to be put into one's place and to find that it's very simple, very, very small, rel relatively speaking, is actually a great relief. And to, to understand that the landscape, if we could use, it, use that metaphor, is so vast with such variety, which is, of course, the other side of finding one's own place to be quite small, opens up all kinds of fascinating possibilities.
and endless. Yeah. For, for curiosity and investigation. Uh, but it does, I find it, to the extent that I had it at all, if I did, it has certainly robbed me of any, any kind of um, certainty or expectation of yeah. achieving anything in particular. Um, which mm-hmm. might sound defeatist, but I don't find it to be defeatist at all. I find it an enormous relief and actually quite liberating. And I use that uh, not in the enlightened sense, but it's quite liberating from a practice point of view, for example, or even an intellectual point of view. Recognizing one's limitations, one more clearly sees, well, what, what work is there to do within one's scope of capability? I found that to be myself very, uh, very positive. I mean, I can, I can totally uh, relate to that actually what you're describing because i would put it in in the terms that you know the more all of the knowns that you thought are there they turn into like unknowns and uncertainties the more this is happening uh the less you have to hold on to some just in in some regard you know and you can say well i give it the benefit of the doubt let's see but there is no not really any point to to argue with somebody about something or is it like this or like that? Should it be like this? Or like, I mean, like in, in the end, like, I mean, who am I to tell, you know, let's just all like relax and then see and see what's, what's coming down our roads. Yeah. And I perceive it like this, precisely like this with working on text. Yeah. I mean, already when we start, I mean, we know that we will fail in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it does by no means mean uh, that it was not worth every minute. Yeah, this is really like two absolutely different things. And this is what I mean with, yeah, what I described with what you took up, like knowing where one's place is. Hmm? And, um, and I know that I'm not in the position to establish uh, some ultimate work there and neither is my colleague, yeah, who is uh, probably to... A much greater extent, I'd say, um, uh, focused on and able to really properly apply the philologist methodology. I think that's, uh, I, I probably he would not even dare to argue with me about this, although he would, I suppose, argue on almost everything else. Yeah. Um, but uh, probably he would not even argue with me on this, uh, on, on, on this particular point. You know, like I might, might have a couple of, other qualities like everybody you know everybody has their set of skills and and what they can do and what they cannot do and within that you know like we are trying to operate and when we have a little bit of surplus or our conditions allow then we can hope that others might also benefit from it it's a little bit like like you know like in this famous words of shantideva yeah Uh, you 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 know which one i'm talking about right Uh, i think it's the this is the second or third verse I don't know. I think it's the second word where he says, um, uh, nothing, uh, nothing is set anew here. Uh, I have no particular skill in composition and everything I'm doing here is purely to satisfy my own mind. And, and then it continues and says, and if I'm, uh, if, if I have a little bit of luck, you know, somebody else, uh, might uh, profit a tiny bit of, right. And, uh, in some sense, of course, everybody would say, well, I mean, that's obviously an overstatement. This guy is just too modest. Uh-huh. You know, but in some regard, you could also think, you know, like maybe he also was just a person who knows where his 
place is. Yeah? <laughs> in some sense. Yeah. And I do not I do not want to say that I want to compare myself with Shanti Deva. Okay. Just to make that clear. That's not what I am. Um, but um yeah, I think what 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 I meant to say here is like like you do your podcast, right? And I think you also started out of personal interest yeah, in your topic. And it's totally okay that you pursue this without that in the end of how many hundreds of episodes it will be in the end, you know, um, you necessarily uh, provided the big truth, you know, uh, to somebody. Yeah? And still, it doesn't mean that it was not worth every minute of your time. Yeah? So I, I think in that sense, I see the philology work also. Yeah, wonderful. Well, let's as we bring, I think, our discussion to a close this time, let's bring your project to a close. So we've talked about how you select a topic and how you go about choosing that and so on and, and getting the conditions right that you can work on it, funding and collaborations, whatever the case, but setting all that up. And we've talked about what it means to produce a critical edition. So now you're in the closing stages of your project. What are the closing stages? What are the last touches you'll do? And then where does the te- where, where does a criti- critical edition go? Is it published for a general audience or is it uh, available mm-hmm. in, scholar- in scholarly um, uh, libraries and so on? What is the, the journey of a critical edition beyond, uh, from the point you're at now with it, the closing part uh, onwards? And what will the journey in particular be for your Interbeauty project? So... Um... The last question, I really have no idea uh, when and if and how we ever going to come back to that. I really don't know. Um, the rest, you know, like we produce in addition, you know, the Sanskrit text, the Tibetan text, we translate it, we annotate it, we discuss all the problem in the proper scholarly fashion. And of course, we introduce our work you know, a little bit about the author, a little bit about the contents, a little bit about the context, the description of the materials that we used and so on and so forth. And uh, this bulk of a couple of hundred pages, then of course, in the end, you know, uh, it has to it has to be proofread, it has to be formatted, uh, indices have to be made, you know, and there is uh, of course like many weeks, if 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 not months, of uh, this rather cumbersome process to um, to go through all of it to try to have as as little. Uh, mistakes and typos and inconsistencies into that and yeah then it will be published in some uh, some scholarly uh, series and that's it yeah and then it's there ready for the bookshelf <laughs> yeah and of course if, if we are happy a um, couple of people can refer to it you know? um, we we made a contribution in that area and uh, you know if not all libraries burn down at the same time and all hard Price draft <laughs> crash at the same time, you know. Then it will also um, um, outlive uh, both my colleague Torsten and myself, uh, so that we sh- at least we contributed something, you know. Let's let's say it like this. And I suppose that the person who benefited most from it um, is probably him and I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, we consider ourselves uh, lucky to be in that position. Um, yeah, and as for the rest, what would she, what should one say? Yeah, I mean, we can just hope that um, that others find use in it hmm? uh, for whatever purpose it may be, as as many as possible, and we we can remain thankful about that we had this opportunity. 
and um, yeah, then the rest is not up to us anymore. Yeah, that's just this small, tiny, ti tiny thing in in the vast of the ocean. You know, like half a drop, <laughs> and uh, that's that's that. And you know, what's coming next is always difficult to say. You know, like he will you know, go on to have a different position doing other things. I I'm I'm as well. And like, who knows if there will ever be time to actually come back to that. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably also one of these things that are sometimes um, a little bit difficult or tricky, you know, like you develop really an interest for something and think, okay, I mean, you know, like I think both him and I, we feel like, okay, now we spent enough time on getting our foundation kind of straight. So now actually there is this bunch of things one would like to actually look into now that you got a little bit hold of something at least yeah at least you know there is this this fraction you know which you kind of got kind of straight i mean not totally but much better than before let's say it like this yeah and you get an idea oh, okay there is all of this other stuff like floating around that would be really interesting actually to look to look into that also but there is already where it ends <laughs> this is in some sense you know it's again it's interesting you know, like like a new universe opens up and at the same time you know that probably no time to fly through it you know? at least uh, in this lifetime it will be might 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 become tricky yeah so and this is yeah and I'm, I'm also sometimes myself not sure what to make of that where it actually leads i don't know i mean i just happen to have this circumstances like I said, a combination probably of some form of of uh, of, uh, of of uh, merit and fortune, I guess, yeah. that you end up there, and but what it's good for, where it goes, and what happens with that next. Honestly, I have no no idea, you know, about all of these questions. And I'm sure there will be people listening now who'd like who'd like to follow this project, and when you do publish it, read it. How how best? I, I'm one of them anyway. How best? Should that be? Is it going to be in English or auf Deutsch? No, English, English. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it will be published in a series uh, in Naples, which is called Manuscripta Buddhica, and because there will be a manuscript printed in the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, when when it's time, uh, uh, Steve, you know, I can uh, I can let you know. I'll send you a copy. Oh, yeah. thank you, Dr. Julian Schott. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.